Our scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. It's, uh, you can find it in your bulletin. It'll also be projected up here. We are currently in our series in the book of Hebrews, and we are nearing the end. There will be uh, three sermons left, including today's. And uh, I'm excited for the next series that we'll be doing in the Holy Spirit. All right. This is a word of the Lord come from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray for a moment as we uh, get into this text. God, we thank you that you gather us here, and together we come and, and listen. And even myself, as I preach, uh, I come with ears to hear what your word has to say to us uh, corporately as a congregation but also personally and individually and we know you're a God who speaks and so we pray God that by by way of the Holy Spirit you would speak to each one of us today uh, in the ways that is accord in accordance with your word and your supreme uh, good wisdom uh, and we know you love us and care for us uh, as a father loves and cares for a uh, son as we read in this passage and uh, we pray God that we would feel uh, your care for us today in Christ name we pray amen uh, <clears throat> so let me just remind you why we started the series in the first place as we get towards the end of the book of Hebrews. Uh, one of the convictions that I, uh, I had, and it's not like a, um, you know, it's not a profound, profound conviction, but I do think we need to be convicted of uh, a simple fact if we are going to follow Jesus faithfully, and it's this. Jesus is better. Just simply that. Jesus is better. And uh, this is a very pastoral letter written to a community of people who are discouraged uh, they are going through some tough times. They are going through some trials. And as a result of these difficult times, some people are actually in danger of falling away from the faith. And what the author is trying to do is encourage them to press on, to persevere, to overcome these obstacles with a very simple message that Jesus is better. 
So if you are a Christian, that means you are called to live a life by faith, which means you are supposed to live in accordance to not just what you see with your physical eyes, but you are to live in accordance with unseen spiritual realities. And what is, I think, really interesting is how the author uh, sees the life of faith. And he uses this illustration or this metaphor that we're going to unpack today, and he calls it a race in verse 1. Athletic metaphors are not super uncommon in the Bible nor in our culture. And I think one of the reasons why people love sports and find sports to be so valuable beyond its entertainment value is because in many ways, sports is a metaphor for some of the things that we experience in life. Um, If you're a fan of the NFL, there was a quarterback who retired recently, Andrew Luck. He retired unexpectedly. Uh, I saw his press conference announcing that retirement and you know he's thanking his teammates he's thanking his coaches family friends and those kind of things and at the very end he says you know in a somewhat philosoph- philosophical way i want to thank the game of football because football has given me so much through the highs through the lows through the winning through the losing football has taught me about things like teamwork and perseverance and has made me the man that i am today and even in that very small snapshot, as he's being reflective of what it meant to be an athlete and to play this game, he understands that uh, athletics or sports has taught him, has given him so many things beyond just the sport in terms of his character formation. Uh, when I was in high school, believe it or not, uh, I played sports at one point in my life. And in high school, I played lacrosse. Uh, You know, I ended up being a, a goalie when I played lacrosse. And the reason I was the goalie is because on the first day, when I was a, a freshman, the first day of practice, I showed up and they said, what do you want to, what position do you want to play? And I knew nothing about lacrosse. And I said, well, what do you need? And they said, we need a goalie. And I said, okay, I'll do that. I'll be the goalie, right? Uh, most other people started playing lacrosse around fifth or sixth grade. I was a little bit late, but it turns out goalie was a good position for me because uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't huge, I wasn't big, I wasn't super fast, but I had quick reflexes so I could stop a ball from going into the goal. And uh, so uh, as a freshman, I ended up starting on the team. And then uh, pretty soon, I think within like a year or two, I ended up being promoted and being the starting goalie on varsity. Now, I think maybe for uh, typical people, that would make them happy, but uh, I actually did not want that to happen. And uh, the reason I did not want that is because uh, being a goalie, and especially as the, uh, the levels go up, there's a lot of pressure, right? And I, I didn't like that pressure. And not only that, goalies are supposed to kind of be the leaders of the team, leaders of the defense, and you're supposed to tell people, like, what to do and um, be like, you go here, blah, blah, blah. And I, I felt like a little bit of a fraud because uh, I hadn't played the game that long. I didn't really understand it. I didn't really know what to tell the people to do. Uh, <coughs> so I was always getting yelled at for not telling people to do what they're supposed to do, but I was like, in my head, I don't really know <laughs> what they're supposed to do. There was just a lot of pressure. I felt a lot of fraud, and uh, I think during the season, I would actually feel a lot of anxiety because I wasn't super comfortable uh, playing this sport, and uh, especially in this position as a very young, inexperienced player. But that's what was expected of me. That's what was expected of my position, so I just kind of went with it. Uh, during my playing years, I had some highs and I had some lows. Uh, My, uh, I guess my high, that the only high (laughs) that I really remember is one time I made it into the uh, the local newspaper because I had a really good game. And I still remember what the headline said. It said, Kim, key, 
Columbia, and you can tell that there was not much space to write a lot about what happened in the game because it's a dinky high school game uh, in a newspaper. But I was like, oh, I saw the headline. I was like, oh, wow, my my last name got into uh, the newspaper, and there was like this like two line uh, summarizing what happened in the game. At the time, I was very proud of that. That was probably one of my great highs. But I had a lot of lows too, and one of my all-time lows was, um, you know, we were in a, we were playing a playoff game, and in this playoff game, I played really poorly, and I'm pretty sure we lost this game because of me, because of how poorly I played. And after the game, you know, in a playoff game, it's like sudden death, so you lose. Season is over. Uh, for the seniors on the team, this is their last game ever playing uh, lacrosse on a team, so it's especially meaningful for them. And after the game. Uh, like all the seniors, they're just like sobbing and they're crying because we lost the game. And inside, I was like, oh my gosh, I let them down. And I felt horrible, right? I felt horrible. I went home uh, after that day, after that game. I went straight to my room uh, with a bag of Cheetos and I just ate Cheetos in my room <laughs> and stared at the wall all night feeling horrible about what had just happened. I didn't want to go to school the next day because I felt so much shame because I think everybody else knew it was kind of my fault that we lost this game. And uh, you know, you have the, your final team meeting and I didn't want to go to that team meeting because that meant I had to look at my teammates um, in view of the fact that I played horribly. Now, uh, <coughs> truth be told, I actually wanted to quit playing lacrosse at that point. I was like, this is not worth it. Uh, I didn't pick up a lacrosse stick for a very long time, but eventually, you know, I went back to it. I went back to training. I went back to practicing, and I ended up playing the next season. And I reflect on those kinds of experiences when I was young, and as much as I hated, I hate so strong word, as much as I didn't really enjoy playing a sport or playing lacrosse in those uh, years, those experiences, I think, shaped me to be who I am, and they've they taught me a lot about lessons about perseverance, about losing, about overcoming failure, about responding to, to pressure, about accepting the responsibility of leadership, uh, and I think those were very important lessons for me uh, as a young man growing up. Now, some of these lessons translate well into the life of faith, which is why I think the author of Hebrews is using an athletic metaphor when he is trying to describe the life of faith. You need to be able to persevere and overcome hardship in order to live this life of faith. You need to learn how to keep running even when you don't feel like it. And if we anchor ourselves in this metaphor, what this passage does for us today is it tells us how to run this race and what we need in order to continue to run this race. So two questions basically that we're looking at. So how do we run this race? Uh, the way we run this race is given to us in verse 2, and it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's how we run the race. We have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, I want to call this having a, a, a sanctified imagination. And when I use the word imagination, I don't really mean to imply that, oh, it's just something that we make up in our heads. But when I use the word imagination, basically to be able to see something that we do not yet see something that maybe has not transpired into reality yet, but to see it. Now, we use our imaginations all the time in order to shape our lives. If you've ever tried to maybe shape your body in a certain way, maybe you've imagined what you would look like after uh, going on a certain diet, after some uh, care, after some exercise, and that's why health magazines, I think, have these pictures of people who are uh, muscular or in shape. It's meant to spark the imagination of what's possible. Or if you've ever tried to shape your career in a certain way, you've probably imagined what life would look like if you had a certain level, uh, high-level position with a certain salary. 
and motivational speakers may use their life as an example to motivate people and say, imagine the kind of success you can have in your career if you do these steps. Now, using our imaginations in these ways can actually potentially hurt us uh, because we can't always shape our bodies. We can't always shape our careers the way we want, nor should we. So it's important that when we use our imaginations to look to set our eyes on something that won't necessarily harm us, but something that will actually give us life. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, set your eyes, look to Jesus, the author the, and perfecter of our faith. Now, why does looking to Jesus help us run this race? It gives us focus. Okay, now where do we see the idea of focus in this passage? Uh, I have to explain it a little bit. According to verse 1, there is something that clings so closely that it needs to be laid aside, and it's sin. But the Greek word translated as clings so closely is not the easiest word to translate. It only occurs once in the New Testament. Uh, but it's a word that can also be translated as easily distract. So another way to read this is, let us lay aside every sin which so easily distracts. Now in the ancient world, when someone would get ready to run the race, you know, you don't want to wear like a huge robe to, to run a race, but you strip yourself of your clothing uh, so that your, your robes or your clothing does not get in the way. And I think this is a type of imagery that is being conjured here as the author talks about sin. Sin is something that entangles us. Sin is something that impedes us. Sin is something that clings to us. Sin is something that distracts us when we are trying to run this race. And what that means is spiritually, sin is what hinders us from living this life of faith. It makes us lose focus. It turns us away from looking towards Jesus to looking towards something else. And that could be a strong desire in our hearts. That could be a, a deep fear within our hearts. That can be just the stubbornness of pride. That could be a lack of trust for God and his plans for us. But what probably links these things together, again, is it tends to take our focus away from who God is and what he does and put our focus either our, on ourselves or on something else of this world, which fosters the wrong kind of imagination. But when we look to Jesus, what we can do is we can run this race with a greater sense of purpose and a greater sense of focus because we remember why we run, who we run to, and what we can expect at the end of this race. Second question, so what do we need then to run this race? And the answer is pretty simple. At, at least in this passage, we need discipline. Discipline. Uh, the author quotes from a proverb found in verses 5 and 6, and he reminds us of something very important. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And what that means is the author is interpreting and seeing the present trials of this community's life, and he is calling it a form of discipline. Now, we might think of discipline as something that is entirely negative, but discipline is actually overall a good, positive thing. Uh, the, world for discipline, the word for discipline is paideia, which can be translated as training. And as in athletics, uh, you, you need to train your body. You need to discipline your body if you want to make it to the end of the race. You don't run a marathon without training for it, uh, but you train a long time for it. And if you think about it, athletes put in all the work they can to really make it towards the, the end of the game, right? Towards the last quarter or the last inning or whatever it is, the last period. And it takes a lot of discipline to get your body ready for an athletic contest. And the reason why some of us, uh, the reason why I have a hard time exercising is because exercising is painful, right? Uh, 
exercise, when you exercise, when you uh, lift weights or when you run, you actually feel like you're getting weaker, right? You actually feel like your strength is going away because you're exhausting your muscles, but what's actually happening is you are becoming stronger. In order to uh, get stronger, you have to exhaust your muscles so that when they rebuild themselves, uh, they become stronger. No pain, no gain is, is the saying. And uh, in a similar matter, if we are going to uh, have a stronger faith, we actually need discipline to make us stronger in the Lord. But see, the metaphor shifts a little bit from this athletic contest, and now it shifts to this metaphor of a father-son relationship. And you, you kind of ask yourself, why? What is the author doing? Uh, when you're suffering and when you're going through a hard time, uh, I don't know, the idea of a father is probably much more comforting than the idea of a trainer or a coach, right, yelling at you to, to run faster or to do better. Uh, the idea of a father is, you know, he, he's caring for you and discipline is uh, supposed to come out of love, although I know in our earthly experiences that's not always the way it comes out or looks because our earthly fathers are imperfect as the passage says, but in an ideal world, that's uh, the that's how a parent should discipline a child. It's meant to be rooted in love. Uh, if you are a parent, uh, <coughs> or not even a parent, but if you've ever been involved uh, in children, teaching children next door, uh, anything of that sort, if you're a teacher, you know that disciplining children is not the easiest thing to do in the world. Uh, it takes a lot of work to discipline your children. Uh, when my children act out, um, or actually when I see other children act out, uh, you know, I don't mind because I don't have to do anything about it. It's not my responsibility. Um, but if one of my children are acting out, then it's like, ah, oh, right, I got to do something about it. I got I to gotta discipline them. And it's a lot of work. And sometimes, you know, they don't react well to discipline. Uh, literally, it takes an hour of my day, sometimes two hours of my day, to discipline my children and go through that entire process. But that's something you have to do if you want to raise children well. The author recognizes something here. Um, that's important. It's this. Earthly parents don't discipline children perfectly. And it's because discipline is one of those things that is difficult, as I said. One of the things that I am most unsure of as a parent. I am not sure if I'm being too easy on my kids. I am not sure if I'm being too hard on my kids. Uh, I'm not sure when I should just kind of let something go. I'm not sure when I should really stand firm in something. And children have different personalities. Uh, we have two kids, and they're very different. They react very differently to discipline, so you discipline them in different ways. And I can't discipline my children the same because they just take it so differently. So I'm pretty sure I'm getting disciplined wrong <laughs> right? as, a, as an earthly father, even though I uh, sometimes try to do my best. But that's what the author is saying here, right? Our earthly parents disciplined us but their discipline was imperfect. But if, if our earthly parents love us, how much more does our father love us and how much more uh, perfect is his discipline for us? And according to verse nine, the father spirits disciplines us perfectly for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Therefore, we can be sure, we can be certain that the trials that we face in life is a form of discipline that is ultimately meant for are good. Now, here's the thing. If you're a, a skeptical type, you might say, really? How can you be so sure? This hard thing that I'm going through right now, you're saying that the Lord is disciplining me? How do you know that? I think we can be sure of that for a very simple reason. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross. 
You see, there's a difference between discipline and punishment. Sometimes punishment can be a form of discipline, but punishment is not necessarily discipline. Because the purpose of discipline can be summarized by verse 11, where it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The purpose of discipline is to train us. The purpose of discipline is so that we would eventually yield or produce good fruit. Punishment is not necessarily concerned about yielding good fruit because its main concern is justice. Discipline says you should feel pain because it's for your good. Punishment says you should feel pain because you deserve it. You see the difference there. Now, what do we deserve? Discipline or punishment? I would say we deserve punishment. Because of our sin, we deserve to be punished, not disciplined. We've rebelled against God. We've offended God. We've disobeyed God. We've doubted God. We've doubted his goodness. We've elevated other things above God himself. And for that, we deserve punishment. But here's the beauty of the text. It doesn't say we are punished. It says we are disciplined. Why? Because we are like sons. God is treating us as sons. Now, here's the irony. Jesus is the only begotten son, and yet he is the one who gets punished. When Jesus goes to the cross, his punishment fulfills that requirement of justice so that there is no more punishment left for us at all. That's why we can be sure that the hardships that we face in life are rooted in love rather than in his displeasure. That's why we can be certain that the hardships that we experience in life is God's fatherly form of discipline for us to build up and to strengthen our faith rather than some form of divine retribution. The cross is what makes us certain of that. Now listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4. A really beautiful passage. He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Through Jesus, we are adopted as sons. Now, by the way, let me also say this. Sonship is a way to communicate status. So it's not really about whether you're male or female, uh, but it's sharing in the status of Jesus as the eternal son of God. It's sharing in his status as the one who is uh, an heir of the inheritance. And in the ancient world, sons were heirs to an inheritance. So when the Bible is saying we are sons, uh, it's not a male-female thing, but it's saying it's a status thing. It's saying this, you are like a son in that you are now entitled, right? We don't like that word, but you are actually now entitled to this wonderful and glorious inheritance. Why? Because it has been given to you, purchased for you by the blood of Christ. As sons, we are privileged to receive God's loving discipline that is meant to ultimately yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And therefore, it's through discipline in the form of a lot of our struggles, a lot of our hardships, that we are able to grow stronger in this race and that we are able to run this race until the end. That's what we need, discipline. If you know anybody who has strong faith, just think about that person, anybody that you know who has strong faith. My guess is that person has probably experienced uh, some degree of hardships in their life and they have overcome And as a result, their faith grew and they've grown stronger in faith. 
I think that's how faith oftentimes grows. It's through our struggles and through God's discipline. Now, um, I want to point you to a, a another verse. You see in verse 5 where it says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Uh, you know what that means? It means this. Uh, take your status as sons seriously. Uh, don't disregard it. Do you know who didn't take his status as a son seriously? This guy named Esau, right? Esau, at the end of this passage, he serves as a warning in this passage because he was actually the eldest son of Isaac, and he was the one who was supposed to receive the blessing because, uh, I mean, he was a twin, but he, he came out first, right? So he was born first. But what he ended up doing was he sold his birthright to his twin brother Jacob for a meal, that's one of the reasons why you have this animosity between these two people groups, the Israelites and the Edomites. Israelites descend from Jacob, Edomites descend from Esau. Verse 16 implies that Esau was sexually immoral or unholy, but I think a better translation is actually this, because actually in, in the Genesis narrative, you don't see any evidence of him being sexually immoral. Better translation is probably this, that Esau was apostate or irreligious that he was in that position to receive the blessing as a son, but because he did not regard his status as the eldest son, he ended up losing it. Why? For a meal. The warning in this passage is you are all sons. You have been made sons in the person of Jesus Christ. Do not take that lightly. Do not take your status as sons lightly. You know, according to census data, the number of people who identify as, as a Christian is, is shrinking here in the West. And uh, some people think that what's happening is because it's becoming less advantageous socially to identify as a Christian, uh, before you had like, uh, you know, you had like, I guess, the, the really s uh, convicted atheists or non-religious, and then you had the really convicted Christians, and then you had kind of something in the middle of like these nominal uh, Christians, that, that middle section of Christians, the nominal Christians who didn't really uh, take faith seriously, but they still wanted to identify as a Christian. That's actually what is shrinking. And uh, what you're left with are uh, either people who are very committed to uh, some kind of uh, irreligion or you have people who are committed to Christianity, but y you don't have like that, that middle. Uh, that's why churches are, are shrinking in the West largely. That's why Christian schools are closing down. That's why Christian colleges are struggling to stay open. Uh, that mushy middle is uh, disappearing, but that mushy middle is, I guess, represented by somebody like Esau. Uh, maybe you're in church. You're in a position to receive blessing. You're there. God offers it to you. But on account of the desires of your hearts, whether for acceptance, whether for some kind of fleshly fulfillment, whether for money, career, relationship, whatever else enslaves our hearts, you reject it. That's what Esau did. That's the warning of this passage. Don't be like Esau. So what do we need to do? This takes us to the beginning of the passage in verse 3 where it says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what we need to do. We need to consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Very practical application. So let's do that. Let's consider him. Uh, are you unhappy in life? Do you feel unfulfilled? Are you having a quarter-life crisis? Are you having a midlife crisis? Consider Jesus ministered for three years, very short career. Then his life was cut abruptly short at the age of 33. Never married, had no children, started out with this big following, right? His career soared in the beginning, crowds followed him, 
but quickly dwindled after that, and by the end, he's alone. Died alone on a cross. If you think God is not in control of your life, and that maybe what's going on in your life that you don't like could not be part of God's plan for you because you don't like it, consider him. Consider Jesus. God's plan for Jesus was for him to die. Not a typical death, but one where he's mocked, one where he is wrongly convicted as a criminal, one where he is sentenced to die in one of the most horrific ways known to man. And if you don't think God uh, cares about you, consider him. Consider Jesus. He experienced agony on a cross, rejection of the Father, punishment for your sins, so that you might be spared from that agony, so that you may be given this great gift of eternal life, so that you might receive the welcome of the Father. He cares enough about you to discipline you in your life so that your faith would grow stronger, so that you may complete the race, so that your life would yield the fruit of righteousness. And whatever you're going through in your life, whether good, bad, whether hard, consider Jesus who endured on the cross for our sake. In a minute, we're going to be able to consider him together as we partake in the Lord's Supper and as we receive the elements today, as you reflect upon your life, what's going on in your life, how you feel about your life, as you partake, consider Jesus and his broken body for you. Let's pray together.